Good morning, church. The reading for today is out of John chapter 21, verses 20 through 25. It says, oh, I knew this page was going to do this. Uh, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is that or who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers, perfect timing, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other works that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Zach. Thank you, Melissa. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you. Um, we are wrapping up the Gospel of John today, so if you could turn there in your Bibles, we'll be there in a minute. Uh, just kind of, if you have a, an actual Bible, just place your finger there, and if not, uh, just uh, get your phone loaded up to that uh, spot. Uh, we don't have a, what you might call a traditional Palm Sunday message uh, this morning, but I did want to say... I've been thinking a lot about Palm Sunday and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on this day. Um, and and it's, it, I think it's that whole week, Holy Week, is an interesting study in human nature. And if I may be so bold as to say it's an interesting study in human nature when it comes to politics. Because if you recall, we, we refer to, in the church, we refer to Jesus entering Jerusalem uh, we refer to it as his triumphal entry. Everybody's very excited that the king is coming, right? But then what happens is the people realize that the king that's coming is not going to give them what they want, but what they need. He loves them enough to give them what they need, and so they turn on him. That's our nature. And that is our political nature, even. Sometimes we don't understand that what we're getting is not what we deserve, but what we need, even though it may be unpleasant and unhelpful to us in our minds at the time. But Jesus is the picture of that. He's the epitome of that. Everything that you think you want, everything that you think would fulfill you, everything that you think you might need, it comes in Jesus. And then everything flows out of that. When we talk about marriage, we talk about marriage being gospel-centered and covenantal because you're to look to Jesus first and then to your spouse. Everything in your marriage should flow out of Jesus coming first because he'll give you what you need, he'll fulfill you, and ultimately that'll be what you want. So that would be the little mini-sermon from Palm Sunday. Now we'll get into wrapping up the Gospel of John. But before I do, I just want to remind you about uh, Easter Sunday. Again, we're having baptisms in the service. If you... Uh, Want to talk about baptism, please see me or email me or text me or whatever it is that you have, whatever availability you have to talk to me. I'll be around after services today and between services also. 
Uh, don't forget that we have three services Easter Sunday. We're doing 7.39 and 10.45. Hopefully many of you will be able to come to the 7.30. That would help us out a great deal. And then all of Easter weekend, resurrection, what we're calling Resurrection Weekend, Friday night is our Good Friday services. We're going to be here at 6 and at 7.30. And then Saturday morning is the brunch and the uh, egg hunt. So uh, just be aware of all of that. Let me pray, and then we're going to get into the Gospel of John. And, and one of the things that Redemption Church, uh, this is happening across all 10 congregations today. One of the things we like to do when we are finishing a book is we like to kind of take a little bit of time to review what was in the book over the last almost two years. Uh, and then we'll get in specifically to the text for today. Our gracious and holy God, we're so thankful that we as a, as a faith community and as a body and as your family, we got, to, we got to work through this great gospel that John has recorded for us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so now as we wrap it up, I just pray that we would take the lessons that we've learned from this book and apply them to our lives, but uh, especially really dwell on why John was called to write this book. And that was so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. He's the Son of the living God. And that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started this on August 9th, 2020. And we did other series intermittently, kind of mixed in between. But we still hung in there. And now we get to complete it. And so, like I said, I want to recap some of the key items from this gospel. Number one, the word believe is the Greek word pistis. And there's all kinds of different forms that it's used. It's a, it's a really common ancient Greek word, and it's an important word. It means believe. It, it, also means, uh, it also means faith, have faith. It also means to trust. It also means in a number of different contexts, and, and it and I believe John uses it this way in the gospel too, it means to give your allegiance to something. So John is calling us by the signs and the miracles and the teaching of Jesus that he's recorded specifically that it would cause us, that it would call us, that the Spirit would reveal to us that it's time to form our allegiance with Jesus, that we are coming to him, and that he is embracing us and that we are with him. And that we are now in Christ and he is in us. And he does that by recording uh, a bunch of things that aren't necessarily in the other Gospels. Some teaching that we don't find in the other Gospels too. But they're wonderful, helpful signs, miracles, and teachings. There's water in the wine. There's the feeding of the 5,000. The healing of the man born blind. There's Jesus' special teaching that he records for us in chapters 13 through 16. And then Jesus' incredible prayer in chapter 17. And again, all of it is designed simply that we would believe. And, and then he says, uh, uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus in chapter 3, he says, you must be born again. And so that's where, this is an important aspect of this. This is where we get that Christian ease language about how if we're in Christ, we are born again. Uh, Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, used to say all the time, you know, if you call yourself a born-again Christian, uh, it's actually redundant. <laughs> because if you're born again, that means you are a Christian. 
It's the only way it happens. You have to be born again. And, and we're born again when the Spirit comes to us and reveals the truth of Jesus and the gospel to us. The good news of Jesus, that we're sinners separated by our sin from God. He's holy, we're not. And that there's nothing we can do to bridge that gap. But if we place our faith in Jesus, if we believe in Him and walk with Him, we are saved. That gap is eliminated. He destroys the sin that we are in. He even, he even takes the, the legal document, the law, and sets it aside because Jesus has fulfilled it and then we are new creations, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5. We are born again. Paul writes in, in, uh, in Romans chapter 6 about how we are baptized in Christ into his death and then we are raised to walk in newness of life. That's baptism. That's the picture. When you go down into the water and are raised back out of the water, we must be born again. The Word. The Word is an important part of this, of this gospel. The, that Greek word logos means message, truth. It refers to the Scripture, the entire Bible. But it also, also rever, refers to Jesus Himself. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is God. The Word is not a God. He is God, Jesus. And then He came, and He tabernacled among us. So then that's the next major theme, is the incarnation, the enfleshment of Jesus, that He came to us in bodily form, that, that you could reach out and touch Him, that He was tangible, that He was real, still fully God, but fully a human being as well. And then... John keeps coming back to this throughout the book, and especially towards the end of the book. This is the true testimony of who Jesus is. John walked with him. John was called by him. John witnessed everything, and John is the last of the disciples to be alive. And so he's seen everything, and John even had that special time where he's on the island of Patmos, and Jesus appears to him, and, and John records the book of Revelation, where Jesus dictates that to him. The letters, and then everything that's going to happen, and then those great verses, uh, chapters at the end of Revelation about the new Jerusalem. This is the true testimony, and this connects to the fact that he calls us to believe, but it's for a different reason. It is not necessarily for the signs and the miracles, but he's saying, also, I am an eyewitness to this entire Jesus life. Then there's this love that shocked the world. He went to the Samaritan woman at the well. Even she was shocked. She was afraid. She acted awkwardly that Jesus went to her there. And yet she understood after their encounter that he is the Messiah. He was the one to come. There's, there's his love in embracing the Gentiles, the non-Jews. This is interesting to me. He got into a lot of trouble for doing the very thing that Yahweh in the Old Testament was calling his nation, Israel, to do. You have to be a light to the other nations. You have to be a light to the Gentiles. And now they're mad at Jesus for doing what God wanted them to do. He's God. He's going to be a light to everybody. He loves everybody. And then he heals the unclean. And not only does he heal the... None of the religious professionals wanted to have anything to do with anybody unclean. But not only does he go and heal the unclean, but he also does it on the Sabbath. And then he reminds us that the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was something that, 
is a gift to us. And God can do whatever he wants on the Sabbath. It's a beautiful thing. And then we got to see the woman caught in adultery as well. And what he does with her. And how he puts everybody else in their place as he redeems her. In John chapter 11, I'm sorry, John chapter 10, we also have that statement. I and the Father, we are one. He proclaims his divinity. He proclaims that he is God. Clearly, I've mentioned this before. I run into so many people who have actually read the Gospels. I'm not sure which Gospels they're reading, but they've actually read the Gospels who say that Jesus never claimed to be God. And yet, right after he says to the religious professionals, he says, I and the Father, we are one. What did the religious professionals do? They got ready to kill him. Why? Because he has blasphemed God by making himself equal with God. They understood Jesus as saying, I'm God. When he says, I and the Father, we are one, he says, I'm God. Come in the flesh. And then we have this constant reminder of his authority and where he gets his authority from. He's constantly pointing to the Father. I don't do anything until the Father tells me. I only do what the Father teaches me. I am only led by the Father. I came here because of the Father. That's where he gets his authority. He's doing nothing of his own accord, but he's doing what God will do for us. Then there's the seven I am statements. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the bread of life, and on and on and on. And when he says that, I am these things, what he's specifically saying is, I'm Yahweh. I'm God, because that's what God said to Moses. There's a clear connection to that. He talks about the Holy Spirit coming. A couple of chapters there towards the end of the book of John, and he just tells us about the Holy Spirit coming and what the Holy Spirit is going to do. He gives us the job description of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what he does, even in this place right now. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's opening our hearts. He's exposing uh, the darkness of our hearts to us, but also explaining to us and revealing to us who Jesus is so that we know that we have salvation. He's teaching us about righteousness. And finally, this book is all about the sovereignty of God. Tom, again, our founding pastor, um, one of my favorite sayings of his, and I I know that he stole it from somebody else because that's just what he does, and then I steal it from Tom, and by the time somebody steals it from me, nobody's going to give any credit to anybody. They're just going to think it's theirs. But at any rate, he used to say, there's no maverick molecule in the universe that's outside of God's control. Not one maverick molecule. And then he goes on to explain, and this is true, God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. He either causes or allows everything to happen. If that's not true, he's not God. We have to understand that. And John, by the power of the Holy Spirit filling him and helping him to write this, teaches that throughout this gospel. We need to understand that. So those are some of the major themes. If I skipped your favorite major theme, I'm sorry. Maybe you could tell me after the first service so I could bless the second service with that major theme that I missed. But now let's get to these last few verses. We'll start with uh, verses 20 through 22. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also leaned back against Jesus during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? This would be John, the one writing this gospel. 
When Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? He's pointing at John. And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So it's a big question. How do we take these verses? This is, you read this the first time, you're like, what's, what's actually going on here? This sounds a little bit testy again, you know, Jesus and Peter having kind of a little argument again. This is yet another place in the Bible where I wish we had voice recordings of inflection. Of course, I don't speak ancient Greek, so I don't know if it would help me, but I could ask somebody who does. How's the inflection? Where's, where's the emphasis of this? What is Jesus trying to say, and what is Peter trying to say? Actually, while that would be helpful, I, I'm not so sure it's that difficult to figure out. I've read a lot about this. We've got access to lots and lots of pastors in, in, in redemption that help us with these things. That's why we have the preaching collectives every week. And I, and I think that we can figure this out pretty directly. And there's wonderful application for all of us in this room here today, just based on this little conversation that Jesus and Peter has. So let's talk about the question first. Remember from last week's message, Peter found out, just in the preceding verses, Peter found out from Jesus both what his ministry assignment was going to be for the rest of his life, and then he was going to die a martyr's death. Jesus very directly told him this. So now Peter's human nature kicks in. This is just what happens to us. His human nature kicks in. He looks at John. He knows that John is one of uh, Jesus' main guys, and so he wants to know what's going to happen to John. He says, well, what about him? What's his ministry assignment? What will happen to John? Peter's curiosity is not sinful, but it is natural. We all have this curiosity, but it's misappropriated. And Jesus lets Peter know that it's inappropriate. Jesus answers the same way, he would answer you or me if we were more interested in somebody else's call to ministry and somebody else's life and somebody else's eventual disposition rather than simply being faithful and obedient to what the Lord has given us and being faithful and obedient in keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus rather than on the drama of somebody else. You know, far too often, pastors get wrapped up in this unhelpful comparison game. It's amazing how it happens. It's one of the reasons I don't go to a lot of conferences anymore. I mean, conferences for pastors. There are a lot of those out there. Go and learn best practices. Go and hear how one pastor grew his church to six zillion people and a budget of eight zillion dollars or whatever it is. And then you just sit there and think, I suck. <laughs> I, again, I'm just, I'm really in Tom mode this morning. He used to talk about how, imagine if you went to a pastor's conference and the introduction was something like this. Uh, our next speaker is Bob Smith. Bob, Bob pastors a church of 80 people in Montana. Please welcome Bob. 80? It's not 80,000? No? Why are we listening to this guy? Okay. We build this stuff for ourselves. Pastors do this to ourselves, to each other. Such and such and pastor is doing this. I need to know more about what they are doing. 
Why are they seemingly more effective than I am? I should be invited to speak at conferences too. I wonder why they're not inviting me. And on and on and on. Those of us who are pastors, there's three or four of you in the room right now that I'm speaking to, <laughs> including myself. Okay? Those of us who are pastors, we need to understand we will never be held accountable to Jesus for what others are doing and what others are called to that are not necessarily our gift mix. We're never going to be held accountable for that. Other people are gifted and wired and talented in other ways and God is using that. Rather than trying to dissect it and figure it out, we should celebrate it. We will, we will however, answer to Jesus about what we were called to do. Could you imagine? Here you go. Frank, we're going to let you in. But before we let you in, I'm dead, by the way, right now. Uh, before we let you in to the New Jerusalem, <laughs> just wanted to get the context right. Before we let you in, something we got to straighten out. Why were you so concerned about Tyler, Tyler, and Trey and what they were doing instead of what you were doing? Even worse, why were you so concerned about Aaron and Luke? Even, even worse than that, you had some pretty bad things to say about Tim Keller, too. Why? Why do we do that? Listen, it's not that we're not interested in best practices. We like best practices, and we think it's important to hear about best practices. But what I found is that more often, it's not best practices that we're interested in. We're engaged in gift envy. We're more interested in meddling. Drama is enticing. We like what Peter's doing here. That's all part of our fallen human nature. And Jesus checks Peter on this. He says, you know, Peter, your job, your call, is to pay attention to your ministry and your journey and to pay attention to me. I will take care of John. But John is going to have a different call. He's going to be in a different church. And he's going to have a completely different disposition than you. That's part of what a body looks like. And by the way, it's not just pastors who struggle with this. Envy, drama, meddling, non-pastors struggle with this as well. Why? Human nature. Listen, it's not that hard to understand. Jesus has a life and a call and a disposition for each of us. And all of that starts with us focusing on Jesus and what he's called us to do and not on others. Research tells us very clearly that all of us engage in something called the social comparison process. We all do. We can't help it. There's, there's even this thing called an imaginary audience. All of us, some of you are like, oh, wow, I didn't know what that is. But I, what, what that, I, I didn't know that's what it was called, but I know what it is. It's this imaginary audience. We're just sure that everybody's watching us. And so we have to watch everybody else and compare ourselves to everybody else. Guess what? Maybe they're not looking at you at the gym while you're looking at everybody else going, I wish I had those arms. I wish I had those legs. I wish I could go that fast. I wish I could stand at the counter and just talk to people and still look that good. I wish I could do all of those things. We compare ourselves vocationally. We compare ourselves educationally. How many little letters do you have following your name? And what do they mean? And where did they come from? We compare ourselves athletically. We compare ourselves in ministry, in God's gifting. We compare ourselves in how we serve. Well, I'm serving this way. What about that person? Yeah, I wish I could serve that way. 
We're always comparing ourselves to others. Jesus and Paul both tell us to stop this nonsense, especially in the church, because it's counterproductive. We should stay in our own lane. We need to, we need to do what we were called and gifted to do and be fine with what happens elsewhere and, and to others. Here's how Paul says it in Galatians chapter 6. If anyone thinks they are somebody when they are nobody, they are fooling themselves. Each person should test their own actions. Then they can take pride. They won't be comparing themselves to someone else. Each person should carry their own load. And I'll, I'll connect this even to one more area of life, marriage. One of the biggest challenges in marriage, frankly, is how many spouses spend so much time comparing their spouse to others and trying to change their spouse. They want a seemingly perfect spouse, and they look around and they see other spouses that are seemingly perfect. I want to give you, those of you who are married and those of you who are going to be married someday, because you should know this before you get into that, okay, I want to give you some helpful facts about all of this, which many of you may not care to implement, but I'm going to tell you anyway. First, you need to remember that as a spouse, you have the undying privilege of always seeing your spouse at their worst while you see everybody else's spouse at their best. Think of it this way. All the other spouses are social media while you're at home with all of the filters off. You got that? Okay, you have that undying privilege to live in that kind of life. Okay? It's really unfair to hold your spouse up to the unrealistic manifestations of other spouses who are on guard and always on their best behavior around you. Second of all, there is no perfect spouse, including you. Remember that your spouse has to live with you, too. Quit comparing your spouse to others. Maybe you should worry more about comparing yourself to Jesus. Then we got some humility going on. Okay. Third, if you're unhappy with your spouse, I want you to remember that when you made the decision to marry your spouse, there were 3.5 billion fish in the sea, and your spouse is the flounder you, you picked. You picked them. Okay. Here's number four. I want to wish you luck, and God bless you in your ministry, if you're devoting your life to transforming your spouse because you're not Jesus. Let Jesus do it. And let him do it in his time. Pray, yes. Suggest and give counsel when asked for it, yes. But if your life mission is to change your spouse, I really feel bad for how frustrated you're going to be. Fifth, if you want a truly rewarding transformation and attainable project, ask Jesus to work on you. Seek God for your sanctification. Read God's word for his patience and wisdom. Sixth. Nah, that's enough. Five's good enough. All right, next verse. 23. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, John, was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? This is an issue that many people try to make when they take what Jesus has said and they, and they 
mix it up and they turn it around and they say Jesus said he was going to return before this happened and then this thing happened. So he's a liar and the Bible is unreliable. We have something similar in Matthew 10 where people use that. Uh, Peter's letters are often used uh, in this way. And verse 22 is, is one of those things that Jesus said. Verse 23, John is straightening that out. But people take these things and, and kind of twist them around. They don't understand what's really going on. And John here provides us with this correction and this clarification, which I think is really helpful. Did Jesus promise to return before John dies? And if so, if he did, where's the promise? I'd like to, I'd like to know where the promise is. So John uses verse 23 to make sure that we're straight on this. Whatever proof text might, one might find for having and have to know when Jesus should come or should have come or whatever, I just want to remind you that there is a verse that takes precedence over all of these other verses. It's Matthew 24, 36. No one knows the day or the hour. No one is there an exception in there? Do you see an, anybody who understands ancient Greek? Oh, there's an exception in there. No? No one. Not even the angels. Not even the Son. Only the Father knows. I cannot tell you how many times, though, I've heard, but Frank, I really do know. I'm serious. I'm serious. It happens all the time. Listen, all Jesus is trying to do here is get Peter to understand that John's business is not his business. That's all he's trying to do. And what Jesus wants us to understand is to look at him and look to him and not look at others. Don't be distracted. Jesus is the prize. It's not any more complicated than that. So, this is it. This is what we've been working toward for the last nearly two years. Final two verses of John's Gospel. And before we read them, I want to remind us of the historical context and what that means to us here, specifically for these two verses. John wrote this Gospel about 20 years after the other three Gospels were written. Paul's letters in the New Testament had already been circulating among churches. They, they, weren't, they weren't formed into a, a book of any sort yet, but they were circulating, and they had been circulating to the other churches around the Mediterranean for about the last 30 years. So what we see is John writing to both a contemporary audience of people that need to know about Jesus right now, but also he's writing to an audience that he knows is going to come for centuries and millennia afterward, which we have. And this is what he writes. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That sounds a little bit familiar, right? Tyler Thompson hit those verses at the end of 20 for us two weeks ago. So John is again explaining that the witness and testimony about Jesus, confirmed by the other three Gospels, confirmed by the other New Testament writings, confirmed by Paul, who is a personal witness to the resurrected Jesus, confirmed by other ancient writings, historical writings, confirmed by historical, ancient historical references, John is saying this is true. You can count on it. 
There's great veracity here. And then John again explains the purpose of the gospel, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Savior, that he's the living Son of God. How can we end this gospel any other way? Do you believe? Have you come to Jesus? Every Sunday, we offer that. By the way, we offer it during the week, too. All you got to do is set up a time and come talk to us. And here you go. You don't even have to come talk to us. You can just let us know, hey, I accepted Jesus this week. And then we can celebrate with you. But if you feel the Spirit drawing you to Jesus right now, again, like like Joe said earlier, we're going to have people standing in the wings who can pray with you, who can answer questions, who can talk with you. Deacons, elders, pastors. And we'd love to engage with you even if you just have some questions. So let's do that now. Let me pray. We're going to gather everybody else back up here for our last two songs and take communion. Again, Father, we're grateful and thankful for who you are. What a magnificent book. What a great gift that John has given us by the power and the filling of your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you so much for that. God, it's our prayer right now that your spirit, who is with us now, it's our prayer that all of us would be turning toward your spirit, opening our arms, opening our hearts, welcoming your spirit, asking for your spirit, thanking your spirit. God, let us be a faith community that testifies to this truth, not only in word, but also in deed and action. Help us to be the hands and feet of your movement. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to sing two more songs. And, and after you've uh, taken your communion elements and, and, have, um, and, and, and have interacted in prayer and contemplation and reflection, that, we, that you would stand with us again and sing participate in whatever parts of these last two songs that you feel led to. We're going to take communion now, and we say this every single week. Jesus instituted this this supper, the Lord's Supper, on that last night that he was with his best friends. And he he does so as, as a way of proclaiming his death until we come again, until he comes again. And every time we step out into that aisle and come forward and get the elements and take them. We are proclaiming, we are confessing that we need him, and we are celebrating the fact that we have him. And so as we celebrate, as we do that, we also get to sing praises to him for what he's done for us, for what he's given us. So let's do that now.
Psalm 118, verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then in verses 2 and 3 and 4, there's this refrain where it says, let, the, let Israel say, and then the people say, his steadfast love endures forever. Will you do that with me? Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. One more, let Redemption Arcadia say, His steadfast love endures forever. Thank you for worshiping with us this week. Go in peace. Live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.